Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hidden Histories. Today, I spoke to Rebecca Riddiel. Rebecca is a great friend, a great historian, and she also goes over and above what is expected to provide fantastic history content to everybody. Her festival, Histfest, was unfortunately postponed due to coronavirus, but she went online. So it's available now on YouTube if you want to have a look at that. And she does tell you a little bit about that in the podcast, but also it's going to be live again in September. Rebecca spoke to me about the 1666 Great Fire of London, the devastating fire that is the most famous fire in our time. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Rebecca Williams. Hello, welcome to Hidden Histories. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, I lo- we've been talking about doing this podcast for so long and it's taken us to get into a period of isolation where we're actually like, right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the Great Fire of London in 1666, which is um, one of three parts of your your book, 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. Mm-hmm. The end point. So what was London like in 1666? Um, what did it look like? And what was the what was the context of the time? Um, So London in 1666 was a city that was recovering from the Great Plague, which had obviously happened the year before, but then it had kind of spilled into into that year as well. Um, It was a city of three parts. There was the main heart, uh, which was the city of London, which was um, and then there was the second part, which was the suburban sprawl, I suppose, that was surrounding this walled central city. And then there was also the city of Westminster, which was to the west, linked by the Strand as well. So there's three components to this city. Um, it's The metropolis as a whole has got a population of, a, well, between 400 and 500,000 people. Um, and in the city of London, which is the the part that was mainly affected by the Great Fire of London, um, this is a, this is an area that's controlled by the mayor, the aldermen, and the city guilds. Um, and as I say, it was within this part of the city that the fire broke out. What did it look like? Because I mean, London looks very different today as to how it did in sixteen sixty six. What were the buildings like? So this was a city that had timber framed buildings it was a wooden a wooden city mainly this the city of london um and there had been a dry um and hot summer during the summer of 1666 so this had ma- made the um all of the buildings as i say very dry um basically turned the entire area into tinder so 
people lived in close proximity to one another. Buildings were very ramshackled. So large buildings that had been built maybe 50, 60, 70 years before had been turned into tenements um, and split up and divided. So there were people living in homes and um, attaching little sheds to the side. Um, it was a very, what's the word I'm looking for, oppressive um, environment. You could walk through the entire city and not realise that it was daylight above. Yes, it was that sort of very much medieval construct and long winding streets and houses that leaned in quite close to each other. Is that right? Yeah, that's 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 a better description than the one I've just given. So, yes. <laughs> yes. So um, where did the fire start and how how did it spread? Well, the fire broke out famously in the bakehouse of a man called Thomas Fariner, who was um, a baker, as the title suggests, um, and he worked for the Navy. Um, England was at war at this time, so he'd been prov um, providing ship's biscuit, as they called it, to the Navy um, before this point. Um, it broke out between, well, just after midnight, around one-ish, in his bakehouse. Um, there were lots of arguments, and there were lots of arguments at the time, as to who was directly responsible. Was it him? Was it his daughter who'd left the coals on inside the oven and um, but in any case it doesn't really matter for the purposes of the story the fire broke out um it took hold of his house quickly spread down pudding lane and then spread further still down towards the river along um thames street which was a place that was almost made for burning it was full of oily um imported goods like fish and um also things like alcohol as well so this was this was a wooden city that was ready to burn and burn it did during the beginning part of september yeah and obviously largely as you said before instigated by the very dry wood and the timber and that hot summer that had been before yeah. And then also, I should say, there were also, as well as it being a hot summer and the place being built of wood, um, there was also a wind that was blowing the fire westward. So an easterly wind, which was kind of stoking this, this the flames and helping it to spread further and further and further. And measures that should have perhaps been brought into place um, weren't taken and by these by measures I mean usually when there was a fire um what would happen would be the surrounding buildings would be pulled down to kind of create a fire break so that the fire couldn't spread any further but because this city was a city of tenants and landlords permission was always needed um to pull down a building the only person that really could override this would be the mayor but he would do it risking um repercussions from landlords so he was reluctant to do this and perhaps if that had happened at the very beginning part of the fire then it might not have been as great as it as it grew to be but i mean that's that's just conjecture so aside from that what was the full effort to try and contain it so efforts were taken. At this point in time, you did have fire precautions. So I've mentioned the fire breaks, but there were other things as well that people had. So there was running water in pipes underneath most of the city and these pipes would be opened up um, so that water could be obtained and put into um, fire engines. Now, obviously, I don't mean fire engines as we would understand them. They were basically carts with a big bucket at the top and a pump that would be used to squirt water onto the affected areas so these were these were um called for but they couldn't fit down the tight um streets and lanes of 
central part of London. So they were kind of rendered redundant. But other things that people used would be um, kind of um, sticks where they would pick and pull buildings apart and water squirts as well. There's a few examples of these or, you know, images of these um, on the Museum of London website, I believe. But we've certainly got buckets that were used to put out the fire. Um, and there's one example in the Museum of London. So if you're listening and curious, um, go and have a look on their website because you can see an original Great Fire bucket other than that, they they the mayor famously was thought to be rather useless. He um he kind of ran away basically and wasn't seen for the for the most part of the the fire. Um and because of this control, direct control for um, tackling the fire fell to those that were higher up in the hierarchy, which just so happened to be the king and his brother. So the king's brother, the Duke of York, was put in charge of putting out this fire and he arranged for teams of men to be um, stationed at various points around the city and they would be attempting to put out the fire by creating fire breaks and um, squirting water and all of that business at various locations around the city, unsuccessfully for the most part. <laughs> Is it true that um, Charles II actually got sort of hands-on involved in trying to extinguish the fire. Yeah, yeah, it is true. Um, there are reports about him doing that. He um, he went and um, got stuck in with everybody. He was seen, he made sure he was very visible and seen to be helping. I mean, there's reasons for this. It wasn't just because, you know, the city needed an extra pair of hands. Of course it did. But the king, you have to remember, had left London the year before when the Great Plague had happened. Now, why a king would remain in a city that was at risk, I don't know. I mean, it was probably the right decision to make. But that didn't mean that people um, still didn't think, oh, you know, why did he leave? He deserted us once. So he needed he needed to be visible. He needed to make sure that the people of the city knew that he was involved in helping to tackle the fire. And he, it, he made sure that these endeavours and his efforts were written into the first um, edition of the London Gazette that came out after the fire, just so, you know, to make sure people were aware that he was involved as well. Okay, so he did sort of use it as some kind of propaganda. For sure, it was propaganda as well. I mean, you know, it's human nature to want to help if you can see an emergency going on nearby. Um, but yeah, it was certainly useful to him to have been involved and helped kind of yeah, it was a it was a useful and convenient um, thing for his propaganda machine. What do you think that his involvement and his handling of the fire says about him as a king? Because he's he's known as, as the merry monarch. It's not sort of it, he's not really considered to be properly considered to be a king who would step up and actually get quite hands on with something um, as extreme as a fire. Is that conception of him not not fair? Do you think? He's a very complex character. Is our Charles II? He's um, he's a, and he's a difficult one to pinpoint. Um, I believe that he, he. I mean, he had been involved in um, you know, lots of action earlier on in his life. He'd you know during the civil wars and after the civil wars, he'd attempted to win back his throne for his father and for himself. Um, there's a famous you know story of him escaping 
dressed up and, and all of that, which I don't really need to go into right now. But, you know, he had been active in his youth and he, he was still, to be perfectly honest. But he does have this reputation. And part of it is to do with the fact that he'd opened the theatres when he'd returned um, following the restoration. He'd um, encouraged sports that had been banned before. Um, so there was a sense of um, frivolity and um, a growing sense of things that people could do um, in in their leisure time during the restoration period. So I think all of this has contributed into creating this um, almost stock character that we we name Charles II. Of course, he was famous as well for having all of his mistresses and being quite um, open about it as well. That said, um, he was a very pragmatic man. He did... He was intelligent as well, um, but he wasn't bookish, but he was intelligent and he knew how to use people. He knew how to tell people what they wanted to hear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, he had to get involved in the fire. He was there and if he hadn't, it, there would have been repercussions because unlike any other monarch, probably before or after, he was very, very aware of the frailty of um, his position. His own father had had his head chopped off. Um, so... Yeah, what does it say about Charles? I don't, I don't know. I, um, he he's a bit in terms of his personality and true thoughts. He is a bit of an enigma. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It, you know, he had to show um, he had to show face because of the situation um, his father found himself in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How exactly was the fire finally extinguished? Well, it wasn't, I mean, it extinguished itself. It it burnt as much as it could. Um, there were areas where fire breaks did help to halt the spread of the, the fire. So the River Fleet, which was still um, in existence then, um, it did kind of stop um, near, to, near to that area, to the, the west of the city. But it did, bur I mean, it just burnt itself out. Um, there was nothing from the efforts of the fire those fighting the fire that really helped to, to end it. Um, but, it, you know, it had taken several days for this to happen. And even, you know, months after, you get reports in, in you know, Peeps's diary, and he's saying that there are still areas of the city that are still smoking. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't through any, any human effort that it was extinguished. So how, you say it's ended at, um, near to the River Fleet, how... how far did it spread and what was um what was the extent of its its destruction so it mainly the fire mainly con was concentrated within the city of london so this is the walled city and the scale of the destruction i mean we, we you can look at maps of um of the city following the fire and it's around about 80% of the city of London that was destroyed as a result. Now when you look down at a map you kind of get the sense that things have been flattened well that's not the case it wasn't a leveled city there were still buildings there and you know debris and um, shells of larger buildings so it was a dangerous place to be navigating and walking around. There were lots of huge casualties of the fire um, places like St Paul's Cathedral which famously was destroyed and um, also so people had stored lots of stuff within St Paul's Cathedral because it was one of the few places that was actually made out of stone. So they thought that their um, goods and belongings would be safe. The book trade stored lots of, I mean, the booksellers stored lots of their things there. And it's estimated that they lost around £200,000 worth of um, stock as a result. Um, the city as a whole, and this is in contemporaneous money the city as a whole it's thought that it probably lost around 10 million um but 
I mean, there were people that lost individually. So you get accounts of people weeping because of their, you know, their homes being um, in ashes. Um, you get people wandering around from the ruin, wandering around the ruins, just picking, picking up the the remains of their homes and things. So, yeah, it was it was extensive within the city of London. Gosh, that's just awful. And I think St Paul's Cathedral was historically such a tragedy. Um, within the Great Fire, there's so much history lost within that, um, within that cathedral and incredible tomb monuments and everything. Yeah, I mean, if you go to the St Paul's, which famously was um, built um, by Sir Christopher Wren afterwards, you go to the cathedral and if you're, actually I don't know if you're allowed to see this as a regular visitor, but I was lucky enough to go behind the scenes a little bit um, a few years ago. And they do still have some of the stones and um, remains of the old cathedral hidden away there. And it's fascinating to see these remnants of... of um, really? Yeah, they've got them. I had no idea. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, there's not loads of them, but they are just kind of stored away in... I was going to say a loft, but it's probably a bit more extravagant than a loft. But it's um, in a random room that I went into, and um, you can see these bits and pieces there. Oh wow! I'd love I'd love to see that. That'd be fascinating. Okay, so Christopher Wren, he was really responsible for everything that happened after the fire. Well, um, how how did he reshape London, or or not, or not Christopher Wren, others as well. Well, yeah, he he got he was made master of the work, so he was in charge of rebuilding, um, well, designing and then um, managing the rebuilding of many of the churches. They didn't rebuild all of them. Um, there were, to be honest, probably too many churches in London anyway. Um, but he was in charge of that. But he was supported by a team of experts as well. So Robert Hook was directly involved in the rebuilding project, and the you know the. There were lots of people that had, you know, ideas about how London should look afterwards, and many. Um, I mean, one one thing that you don't have a shortage of in Restoration London are men that claim to be polymaths. So there were lots of men submitting new maps and ideas um, to Charles II for how the city could look, and there were varying degrees of um, intricacy. So John. Um, John Evelyn, he created one which was, you know, quite nice, as did Christopher Wren. Robert Hook created a map. We don't know what that looked like, but apparently the mayor and um, the alderman really liked that one. But there was one um, guy, and his name's escaped me now, um, and he he submitted a, la a, a map, and it's literally just straight lines across a page, which he thought would be the streets. <laughs> but in the end, because of the way that the city was made up, as I've already said, it was a city of landlords and tenants. The king didn't own all of the land there. The mayor didn't own all of the land. It was owned by individuals. So it pretty much was rebuilt um, on the same, with the same street um, street. Um, layout and things it was just certain rules were brought into place that buildings had to be made of stone or clad in stone uh, or brick I should say and um, the streets were widened and that kind of thing at this point because there was actually um, what a lot of people don't know is there were more rivers than the river Thames were they um, visible at this point or did this re redesign of London actually was was that responsible for covering them covering them up? Yeah, they were visible, and they, some of them were just stinking, boggy kind of sewers. So that I mentioned the River Fleet after the um, after the Great Fire. There was instructions for that to be turned into a kind of canal um, rather than a, a messy river that it was. But there were still reports decades later in the early eighteenth century of how much the River Fleet just 
stank. Um, so yeah, there were there were um, rivers and things, and there was an effort made to make places to make it just a bit cleaner and um, neater because they knew that it would prevent further fires. Um, also, I should also say that trades that encourage smoke and things were encouraged to move out of the city of London um, so that, you know, the, the, the risk of fire was reduced as well. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you briefly mentioned Samuel Pepys, and he is one of um, of many, I want to say chroniclers, but that's, that's probably not the right, the right terminology for this period. Um, so, he's, so he's one of the, uh, the many colourful accounts of this period. What did he have to say about the fire and, um, and, and also others? Um, Pepys is funny during the Great Fire, so he, take, he takes great pride in telling the king that there's a fire going on and he's, he's led to believe, or at least he, be, he believes himself that he was the first person to tell the king. But again, I think this is just Charles making him feel important. But then he details everything that's going on in you know graphic detail. We, we learn about pigeons um, trying to escape buildings, but their wings being burnt. And we, we, we see, you know, he writes about um, women um, raiding barrels of um, sugar and dipping the pouring sugar into beer and and all of this after the fire so there's loads and loads of detail packed into his account but the one thing peeps doesn't seem to do during the great fire is actually help he doesn't (laughs) (laughs) there's no there's nothing i mean it's been a while since i've gone through every single sentence of his diary but i don't think there's any occasion where he actually helps he just talks about other people. He gets it. He helps himself. Like he leaves, you know, gets his goods removed from his house and, you know, and he, he climbs up a church to have a look around. But yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't get in, in and, you know, fight the fire himself. Although he does tell the king about it. Okay. <laughs> I love some of peeps. Yeah, I know. His diary. He's horrible. Some of the extracts He's horrible. his diary are just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And was there anybody else that sort of did have some more first-hand accounts of the fire that so, that suffered arguably more than Peeps? Uh, so yes, there's a, a really lovely account um, of a young boy. It was written when the boy was a man later on and printed a lot later. Um, but there's a there was a young boy named William Taswell that attended um, Westminster School. Um, so he was he was at Westminster Abbey in the morning of the Great Fire and heard about the fire because there was commotion at the back of the Abbey and then all the boys kind of went out to have a, li- a look at what was going on and they saw boats kind of moving westward filled with goods and things and then they learned about the learned about the fire. They were sent these young boys were sent over to the east of the city and they helped aid the fight against the fire. So they were stationed, well, he was by the the, um, the Tower of London um, helping the men there that were trying to put out the fire um, because obviously the worst scenario would be if the fire reached the Tower of London because the Tower of London was full of artillery at the time, um, gunpowder and that kind of thing. Um, so he did actually help and his account is you know, fairly detailed, not as detailed as Peeps, but it is detailed. Then we, if you look in the state papers, you can see letters from people and petitions um, from people that have lost their livelihoods. So there's um, various people that claim that they've lost, you know, 5,000, 6,000 pounds worth of um, their goods. And, um, you know, there's lots of material there. And also John Evelyn, another one that just seems to watch the fire from afar. He gives, (laughs) he gives a, a fairly detailed account of what was going on as well. And you talk about um, the evidence in the state papers. What? Uh, well, once the fire was was extinguished, what was the human response um, to the to the loss and the tragedy of the fire? Well, it's hard to gauge the hu- the human um, cost. I mean, I've mentioned some of the individual accounts. So people did lose lose out financially. Some people left the city altogether. Many returned to the um, area where their homes and businesses had once existed and tried to set up kind of temporary shacks and, and things. But this was banned um, quite quickly, actually. And they had to wait for their, their shops to be re-established properly. Um, but then there's a the psychological impact as well. And there are, there are many accounts of how people had kind of internalised the events of the Great Fire, but also the plague as well. And Peeps writes in his diary about having nightmares months and months afterwards. Another, There's another account of um, a, a gentleman saying that the memory of this event will stay with them for the, the rest of their lives. And I can under, you can understand why, because it was such a, a huge fire. We can't even really... I mean, I, I've experienced fires in, um, myself um, and quite... a you know, during my childhood, there was a very large fire um, at the end of the street where I grew up, grew up. Um, and it was huge. And, uh, you know, just the orangeness of it all and the blackness of the smoke, all of central London on fire, you cannot even fathom what that must have looked like. So it did stay with people. That must have been terrifying. And what did people blame it on? Did they think that it was some kind of divine retribution or did were they quite practical about it? They did both, actually. One of the interesting things about this time is that people were able to both be reasonable and understand that it was probably a human act, but also consider it to be divine um, retribution for their sins. Um, Thomas Farrington clearly was the man um, that caused the fire, his, or at least his his family was, but they, the blame was um, put on to a Frenchman um, who who actually confessed to doing it 
um, and he was executed for for um, for starting the fire. Um, but they blamed they they blamed the Dutch, and during the Great Fire, there were um, xenophobia. Well, I mean, really violent xenophobia broke out towards anyone that was viewed to be foreign. Um, so people um, that were living in London and spoke with any kind of accent that didn't seem English were at risk um, and they hid away and in in some instances they were incarcerated. I think one of the quotes, I think it's from um, the Earl of Clarendon, um, he said that it, it during times like this it's better for them to lose their liberty rather than their safety. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of blame going around. And you can see it whenever... I mean, we're living through a situation that's really odd at the moment. And you can see how people try to blame others or latch onto things so that they can project their own fears onto others so that it kind of gives a physical face to um, what we can't really explain. It's, it's, I think it's very human. I know, looking a few centuries... <laughs> Prior, uh, prior to this, um, there was so, exactly the same thing happened during the Great Revolt in 1381. Yeah, it, all anyone in foreign or spoke spoke um, spoke with a foreign accent in London was targeted and treated appallingly. And it's it's really interesting that you know you you go forward to that 1666 and that that's still happening. But isn't it sad? Isn't it sad, Helen, that we we know this. We know that disaster and disease goes hand in hand with xenophobia and racism. We know that it's happened historically, yet it still happens today. We don't seem to learn those lessons. And I don't know. I, I fear that we never will. Um, and it's one of the things that is just breaking my heart about the situation we're in, um, that that is happening as well. Um, but I know this isn't a, this isn't a conversation about coronavirus um but you know it's i mean it's in my mind it's in your mind as well and any any conversation about a historical disaster it's hard not to draw well, exactly. small parallels before, with today. we were talking about it before we we started the podcast weren't we talking yeah. about how you know you can you know in many cases you can't sort of his history does repeat itself um and you can apply the same principles but look at them differently yeah yeah you can anyway looking sort of Four traces of the fire. Obviously, it destroyed so much of the city of London. Where where survived? Where endured? Well, there's very little, um, unfortunately, within the city of London that survived. The Guildhall um, is knocking about still. That was damaged, um, so you can see you can see that. Then everything to the west of the city, so St Paul's, uh, not St Paul's. That's the the wrong um, religious space. Um, Westminster Abbey. That's obviously still there. It was never really affected by the fire at all, and um, all of that area. But there's one place that is pre-fire that exists within the city of London, and it's brilliant and it's called the old wine shades and it's a little pub that was actually a merchant's house before the great fire but it's a pub now and you can go there and get some uh, nice wine and i would highly recommend it it's um, very historic very dark but it's nice i think we should do that when we're allowed out yes we should <laughs> um okay um, and is there anywhere else that you would recommend that people go to just to see some traces of six of um, 1666 in London or, or elsewhere? Well, 
Waterstones and pick up a copy of my book. You can see some lovely images there. <laughs> or you can get it on Amazon. Yes, or any other <laughs> online or retailer. Any... Um, yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, traces of the fire. Do you know what? The best place to go is the Museum of London because you can see lots of objects there, which, and they, they've, they have a permanent exhibition about the plague and the great fire. And it's, it's fascinating. And it's the, the things and the artifacts that they've got are brilliant. So I would recommend going there and then going to the old wine shades afterwards for a glass of wine or a beer to just to, you know, reflect on what you've seen. It's a date. I love both the Museum of London and I like wine. So Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rebecca. You're working really hard on so many different things. So you've got, let's talk about, first, let's talk about Histfest, which was unfortunately postponed. Mm. Um, when are people hopefully going to be able to buy tickets for um, for the next round? So it's been... Um postponed but it, it is going to happen in September touch wood please touch wood everybody but it's um it's going to happen on the 19th and 20th of September and we've got pr a pretty much intact lineup um there's only one casualty with the move um but we're going to hope we're hoping to do some something a special event anyway so you can yeah you can get tickets to that i think you can get them now um if not, just check out histfest.org and all of the information will be on there. But in the meantime, while you're in lockdown, I've put up some um, videos. We had a mini online festival, so there's some videos on the Histfest YouTube channel, which you can have a look at as well. Amazing. And you've also excitingly got your own podcast coming out soon. Yes, I have. I have. The first, the, well, yeah, the first episode I'm hoping is going to be out this week and it's called Killing Time. And it's a look at the darker parts of history to um, shine a light on uh, the wider social repercussions of um, historical crime and um, macabre incidents. Amazing. I'm certainly going to be subscribing to that. Um, and then lastly, you're also working on your next book. Mm, an ongoing process about the I Stuarts. The <laughs> <laughs> it's, I can give you the title. It's called God's Throne and it is going to be um, a narrative history of the Stuart dynasty. Um, Brilliant. I'm okay, hoping it'll well, be good. Well, everybody keep your eye out for that and I'm sure that it will be out fairly soon. <laughs> at some point this century <laughs> it's look it's hard it, writing a book <laughs> is really hard it's really really hard it and is. so uh, you know what anybody who can do it anyone who does it we should all take our hats off to them because it's it's a tough process and it takes a really long time i'm taking my hat off to you as well helen because i know you're doing the same thing yeah yeah we'll get there in the end and then we'll go to that nice pub yes yes we'll do it I think we have to go before that point, to be yeah, honest. <laughs> oh, well, thanks so much, Rebecca. And I will certainly be having you on the podcast again soon, hopefully, well, to talk about your new book when it's out. Great. Thank you. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.